Okay, so now we're supposed to believe that Tucker Carlson has gone from a flag-waving, patriotic, uh, kind of boomer conservative type to the uh, there's no conspiracy that he won't accept. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play you some tape of him saying that he's open to flat earth, but I'm only going to play that uh, because I feel like playing that. Here we have Tucker Carlson saying that just a few years ago, he never would have believed that the United States government was complicit in some kind of contact with extraterrestrial lives. By the way, the extraterrestrials are somehow in the equipment today. If you hear a, a faint squealing in the background, I don't know what that is. I started researching it. I've spent like half an hour trying to get rid of it. I think it is the sunspots or the solar activity. We've had, we've had the, the most solar activity now of, of any recorded time in history. I'm sure that means nothing, or at least since we've been recording solar activity. I don't know if it's getting into the equipment. I don't know if, we, if I am subject to additional radiation where I am in the non-disclosed, non-American country. I don't know what's going on with it. But there's just this, there's this whistling in the background, and we're talking about aliens this morning here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio the way it should be. Tucker has gone from sort of like the, the, the eccentric bow-tie-wearing backseater at Fox News to the Trump-hating libertarian front-page news guy, primetime guy, to now he is in exile. And in exile... He is, he is uh, continuing to seek ways to remain relevant in exile as he starts asking you for your money. And one of those ways is to be interviewed by all manner of uh, conspiracy theorists, including whoever this is, in which Tucker says that, quote-unquote, aliens are one of the few topics he is scared to cover because the things that he has learned are so dark he can't even tell his wife. There's a spiritual component there that I don't fully understand. You heard him say that. There are parts of the story that I do not understand at all that are really, really dark. It's so dark that I haven't told my wife about it. Parts of the government don't want you to know about it, but part of it is that the public can't deal with it. It's too far out. The implications are too profound. I have to tell you, I think there's a special skill for people who can talk about a subject without revealing anything about it for several minutes on end. Have you ever been the, uh, the unfortunate Saturday morning AM radio person where you turn on the radio and it's Saturday morning and it's like a really weird time slot, right? You're, Maybe you're taking your children to a sporting match or you got some other reason to be listening to the radio at six or seven in the morning on a Saturday. And you hear the guys who are trying to sell you either reverse mortgages or, or some, other, <laughs> some other annuity. And they describe the thing week after week for a full hour without ever telling you what it is. I mean, this is what these guys are doing. It's really incredible. It's a skill. 
I don't know if it's a good skill actually, but it's a skill. That's, that's, that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening with, uh, with Tucker and the alien talk here. They describe how profound and spiritual and dark and creepy and far out it is. And they don't even tell you what it is that they're talking about. That's normal. That, that's what normal people do. Um, I think some of you may have heard about the, uh, about the reconsecration of the temple of democracy. You didn't hear it in those terms though. The temple of democracy was reconsecrated over the weekend. This was pretty big news. It was broke, broke by, I think Laura Boomer broke the news that, uh, there was this Senate staffer in one of the famous hearing rooms. This is the, the, the hearing room in which Sotomayor was confirmed. It was reconsecrated to, uh, well, to, to democracy. Oh you're, oh, you're saying it was desecrated. I see. They're saying, okay, I get it. Their side is saying that the temple of democracy was desecrated by the filmed live-streamed sod medical act inside of the uh, Senate chambers. No, I say it's, I say it's re-consecrated. Because that's what democracy is founded on. It's the very foundation of democracy. I want to, I want to play, well, can I do this? I don't know if I have enough time. I just don't know if there is enough time in this episode. There is this article that I am so fond of, and I recently rediscovered it. It was published uh, two years ago, almost to the day. And it is called The Fatal Trap of Universal Suffrage. Many Catholics through universal suffrage, hope to restore the traditional city or at least slow down the revolution. To do this, an electoral campaign or well-conducted lobbying would be enough. It is indeed difficult to resist the temptation to take the adversary into his own trap using the weapon he put out at, his, at our disposal, namely universal suffrage. And yet this would be a tragic misunderstanding of the nature of the enemy's weapon because it corrupts all who use it. The following document attempts to identify the principle of the motor of the revolution. During this study, we will attempt to model the functioning of the revolutionary process. A model is a description, a representation of reality intended to make it intelligible to us. If a model never claims to identify with the truth, with perfect knowledge of a phenomenon, a process or thing, on the other hand, it allows us to acquire more truth about the object of the study. However, the revolutionary phenomenon by its scale and its inexorable nature of its propagation seems to confirm the belief of its promoters according to which there is a sense of history, a progress of humanity. On the contrary, it appears most unintelligible to the traditionalist thinker to such an extent that such are tempted to explain its expansion solely by the supernatural intervention of demonic forces. The question, therefore, arises, 
would every traditional city be condemned to disappear definitively. Furthermore, the French Revolution, by the way, this was a French author, is written in the French. I'm reading a Google Translate version of it. French Revolution, which saw the overthrow of a monarchy more than a thousand years old, born from the alliance of the throne and the altar, from the pact of Talbiac between Clovis and God, this revolution constitutes such a considerable event that the defenders of traditional France come to call themselves counter-revolutionaries. They therefore define themselves in relation to their enemy, as if they had lost their identity. These, because they forgot traditional principles, are tempted to defeat the revolution on its own ground, and with the tools it puts at their disposal, such as universal suffrage. However, is voting practiced under these conditions as neutral a weapon as they believe or claim? Does it have no effect on the person who uses it? The answer to these questions, and since this is a war between a traditional world and a revolutionary world, we will begin by consulting an illustrious warrior, the Chinese general Sun Tzu, in his work, The Art of War. The latter declares, He who knows the other and knows himself in a hundred battles will not be defeated. He who does not know the other but knows himself will be victorious every other time. Who does not know the other who does not know the other more than he knows himself will always be defeated. We must, therefore, begin by trying to clearly identify the two forces present. Okay, if you're just tuning in, I am reading a French article about universal suffrage. In other words, mass voting. We're in an election year. It's time for us to bone up on these principles here. Because the question is, does voting do something to the person who votes? Is there an effect? Is there a lingering effect on the soul of the person who participates in the illusion? That's my question to you. We must recognize in the Berber St. Augustine, one of the main artisans of the Christian West, and his masterpiece, The City of God, remains a reference in political science. In this work, the Bishop of Hippo distinguishes two cities. Two loves built two cities. Self-love to the point of contempt for God made the earthly city. The love of God to the point of self-contempt made the city of God. One medievalist comments, The city of God is the city of the righteous who seek the kingdom of God before becoming part of the number of the elect in heaven. To this city of God, Civitas Dei, St. Augustine, opposes the earthly city, Civitas Terrena, which groups those who do not seek the kingdom of God. To both he gave the mystical name city. With the advent of modernity, Self-love takes its revenge. The Enlightenment endows it with a doctrinal and political corpus which produces a type of society unprecedented in the history of humanity. God is absent from institutions and relegated to the private sphere. To echo the ancient Augustan distinction and to account for the appearance of this novelty, sociologists, historians, and philosophers have introduced the concepts of heteronomy, 
The heteronomous society finds its justification, its legacy, outside itself in divinity. Jean-Luc Chabot, jurist and professor at the Paris Institute of Political Studies, specifies, quote, so-called heteronomous societies function on the basis of a system of values arising from a principle which is both external and superior to them. They are marked by the transcendence of divinity over view of human life and its social organization. This is the case of monarchical France, where Jesus Christ is institutionally recognized as true king by his lieutenant during the coronation ceremony. This Christian society therefore fully deserves the qualification of city of God. The autonomous society finds its justification, its legacy in itself, and ultimately in man. Within, quote, within the societies of Western Europe developed from the 16th century a design for autonomy, not only of civil power in relation to ecclesiastical power, but much more fundamentally of human society claiming to constitute itself in principle. Such a statement implicitly aimed to effect a transfer of the absolute of religious transcendence for the benefit of imminence, political and social, to replace a normatively based a normativity based on religious otherness with a purely human normativity, having a claim to self-legitimize either through individual reason or through the social order. <laughs> 